0: The Spot Track Podcast, talking sports contracts, the salary cap, and business of sports. Hey everybody, welcome to the SpotTrack.com podcast. Kevin Sylvester, Paul Peck, of course, with the founder of SpotTrack.com, Mike Giannetti. Mike, we have uh, a special guest with us here on the line, Andrew Brandt, former vice president of the Packers. And now he provides analysis of the business side of sports for ESPN, Monday Morning Quarterback, The Athletic, just to name a few, and uh, Andrew Brandt joins us. Andrew, uh, thanks for being with us today.
1: Yeah, happy to be with you guys.
0: We
2: we feel like uh, haven't gotten to know Mike here lately, uh, Andrew. That uh, that you are the equivalent to Mike of what uh, a star NFL quarterback might be to a kid. Uh, you know, dreaming of his heroes. <laughs> and if there's an Andrew Brandt poster available, Mike would have it up in his bedroom.
1: Well, that's really kind, and there's mutual admiration. I use Spotrack. In a lot of my writing and some of my research, and uh, my students that I teach at Villanova, they use it as a resource too. Because even as someone who's been in the league a long time, uh, the information you get is not always accurate uh, unless you get it right from the source. So SpotRack's always been a good resource for me.
3: Appreciate it, Andrew. Uh, just a few questions here. Let's, uh, if, you, if you don't mind, just kind of, uh, kind of dialing in on on how you kind of got, got going with the business and how you ended up with the Packers and and kind of the process of coming to where you are now.
1: Yeah, I mean, I was a kid growing up that maybe it's apropos for what I've been doing in my life, but I always thought of sports as something that was interesting from less kind of a little nerdy kid worrying about players stats and what they're doing and more about sort of why are certain organizations always successful why do these teams win and those teams don't and kind of looking at sports from a bigger picture even at a young age um i got really into sports as a washington redskin fan growing up in around dc my dad would take me to all the games even at a very young age back when it was rfk stadium And that sort of piqued my interest as a spectator, and then as an athlete, I was a tennis player and did a lot of junior tournaments and then went across country to Stanford, uh, where I was certainly not one of the better players there, but got to experience being kind of on the JV of a national championship team, and my life started as an athlete in sports. Really, a few of us on the team decided we're going to try this, and we started to play little ATP Challenger satellite circuit tennis tournaments where show up on a Monday in some small city and usually we were in places like Lafayette, Louisiana, Saint Charles and Pensacola, Florida, and you'd hope to win a match and not have to move on to the next tournament till the next week, but did it for about six months and I realized I wasn't going to do anything with my life and or my opponents made me realize that wasn't <laughs> happening. So I went to law school uh, back where I'm from, and I went to Georgetown, and luckily for me, there was a big firm there called ProServe, no longer, but it represented players in all sports and a lot of players in tennis, and that was kind of my hook-in. They knew me as a junior tennis player in the area, and so I got my foot in the door and sort of worked there during law school, got an offer after law school, stayed in the tennis area for a while and then I saw down the hall uh, David Falk was representing these Michael Jordan Pat Ewing and Alonzo Mourning and Alan Iverson and I'm like, I want to do that (laughs) and I was burned out on tennis and sort of a lesson I teach young people is you know, get in the door and then work your way around. I said I love this place but can I move from tennis over to there and there was a need and they let me and then David was so invested in the NBA, of course, Michael and everything else. There was a small football practice where I looked at it and said, wow, that's an opportunity. And I developed a football agent practice from went from three to eventually by the time I left, we had 15, 17 players in the NFL. So that was my kind of I saw the path as a football agent. And then. I did my first switch from labor to management back in the early '90s, I was doing a contract with the Vikings, and there was a GM. named Mike Lynn, and he looked at me up and down and said, "Do you speak Barcelona?" And <laughs> I said, "Is that Spanish?" <laughs> and he said, "Yeah. Turned out it wasn't. <laughs> I said, "Yeah, I speak it." So he said, "Well, we, you know, we're starting this new league, World League, we're going to introduce football around the globe and looking for young." Hot GMs to sort of run these things, and how'd you like to go to Barcelona? And I said, "Well, let me think about that." And then I realized I got no wife and kids, and opportunity to run a team at a really tender age. Uh, I decided to do it, and I had no, uh, no, no coaches, no staff, no stadium. I it was an amazing experience. I had to hire a coach. I interviewed hot assistants in the NFL, like Tony Dungy and Pete Carroll. And they were all like, yeah, it sounds cool, Andrew, but no way. <laughs> i are not going to Spain. It's going to ca- ruin our careers. I'm not going to Spain. So anyway, uh, Boston College just fired their coach named Jack McNell. I met him. I loved him. Hired him on the spot. He said, I got assistants. I said, great. They're hired. You want to meet them? No, we don't have time for that. <laughs> so we went down to Florida, and we had 800 players, and we poked them and prod them. I didn't know who to pick. I asked the NFL people I knew. They told me who to pick. We picked them. We went five-day training camp. We cut from 80 to 40. We go to Spain. We basically built a team in like three weeks. And um, then I had to sell the product, and no one knew what American football was. We get out there in the first game, and... You know, scene pattern of the tight end. He goes 80 yards. I'm jumping up and down, touchdown. The crowd's got polite golf applause. (laughs) The kicker came on, kicked the extra point, and they went nuts. So I realized, you know, this was the experience I had with the Barcelona Dragons two seasons. Uh, They cheered at all the wrong times. They did the wave the entire game long. And they had no interest. That was the thing I learned. They wanted a party. Uh, they didn't really care about touchdowns and quarterbacks and all that. In fact, they were upset. They kept asking me about why do you have so many meetings. I'm like, what are meetings? You run a play, then you meet. And you run a play and you meet. Well, stop the meetings. And I and I said, well, that's called huddle. I went to coach. You know, he said, screw that. <laughs> we run. We don't run no huddle. Uh, so anyway, you see all the challenges that we had there. Uh, but it was maybe the best learning experience I ever had, because we were truly introducing a new sport to a, to an audience. And it was unlike the teams in London or Germany that really did have an understanding of football. <clears throat> so I did that. And, and I know I'm being long-winded here, but just giving you my whole career, because I think it's instructive, especially to young people, I uh, the league folded or suspended, and it came back... A few years later but I went back to the agency business because <clears throat> once again I saw a path where there wasn't really a team job opening up uh, for us coming back from the World League and I had an opportunity to go back into the agent world and I joined a firm in Boston called Bob Wolf Associates. Bob was a great pioneer in the industry and started representing basketball and football players Primarily a guy who I met as a baseball player ironically uh, who was playing baseball in his off seasons from University of Texas named Ricky Williams, hmm. and then Ricky became this incredible football player, and as I remarked the other night during the Heisman ceremony, you know that was my Heisman experience. I was with him two weeks later, I signed him. I had the number you know top pick in the country. I was at the height of my this is my watershed client of my career. And then I see these guys hanging around, Rick, and I'm, you know, over the next couple months. And I confront him, and he said, well, they work for Master P. I said, who's that? He said, he's a rapper. What's going on? Well, he wants he's starting a sports agency. He wants me to be his guy. And I said, what's that mean for me? And he said, well, I want you to work for P. <laughs> and I said, me and P? <laughs> and uh, I met him and <laughs> I, you know I'm telling my wife at that point I think I'm going to be working for Master P <laughs> because that was my big time client and I didn't know what else to do and the exact same time this was happening within a day or so I'm getting these calls at not at my office but at my home from the Green Bay Packers and I had some players over the years I had one at the time one of my closest friends, Matt Hasselbeck, who was a third-string quarterback. And I called them back, and I said, I can't talk now. i got Ricky Williams. i got Master P. We'll deal with Hasselbeck another time. And they said, we're not calling about Hasselbeck. I said, why are you calling? They said, well, Mike Holmgren, our coach, just went to Seattle. And I said, okay. And he took Reinfeldt, the guy who ran the whole business operation. And I said, okay, sorry to hear it. And they said, well, how would you like to switch sides? And I said, well, Green Bay? (laughs) They said, yeah. (laughs) And I said, listen, uh, you know, you talk to hundreds of agents. Why me? And they said, well, you know, Matt speaks so highly of you. You know your way around all these contracts and cap, and you have a nice way of dealing with people. We want to be more agent-friendly, and what better way to hire a friendly agent? So I, you know, again, a lot of decision-making, leaving the agent industry, and I decided to do it, Um, and moved to Green Bay, Wisconsin, uh, where I had to look up on a map where it was. My wife was a teacher, joined me like eight months later, Um, but... Almost 10 years, and in a nutshell, I was kind of the guy, you know, people say capologist, contract, vice president of football operations. Basically, I thought of myself as the bridge between the business side, which is very long term, and the football side, which is very short term. So sometimes I was being the voice of caution to coach and GM, like, hold on, we can spend that next year. We've invested in D-line, that kind of thing. And other times, I was the voice of caution to, I must say aggression to the business side, where I would say, listen, uh, we need to do this. We need another million dollars here. So, I'm, you know, I managed our payroll, which could be anywhere from 100 to $150 million over the years. Did all the contracts, dealt with all the player agents on all the issues, dealt with the league on grievances and fines and lawsuits. It was a great experience, but I got to a point in my life where I wanted to do something different. You know, I wanted, I felt like i have been there, done that on the team side. And could I create what I, could I fill what I saw as a void in media and in academia where bringing people inside the, the ropes, uh talking about it, writing about it, teaching about it, lecturing about it, um, radio, podcast. And, you know, in a nutshell, over the last seven years, that's what I've been trying to do. And um, I've done it for, as you mentioned, ESPN, Sports Illustrated, my own website at one point. Um, And then on the teaching side, I started teaching in Wharton back in Philadelphia University of Pennsylvania, and then a few years ago, Villanova's endowed a program by Jeff Morad, who's part owner of the uh, Padres, on sports management and sports law. And they asked me to do it, and uh, I initially resisted because I had so much going on, but I left University of Pennsylvania and came over to Villanova on the academic side, and it's been great. Uh, and they've obviously allow everything I do on the media side, and been a great experience. So that is a long-winded way of saying where I came from and how I got to where I am today.
0: Hey, Andrew, I'm curious when the, the first time you did a deal working for the Packers, how that you know the mindset of you're used to trying to extrapolate as much money out of a team as you could. Now you're trying to spend as little as you could. How tough was that to switch? Uh, you know, flip the switch there.
1: Yeah, it was very hard. Um, The hard thing for me was, I guess, the relationships. Um, You know, I I, I sort of have always been kind of a player-sided guy. And when I went to the team side, you know, you sort of hear agents and players say, oh, Andrew went to the dark side. (laughs) And... You know, you sort of feel like, okay, you're the enemy now. And I never sort of saw it like that, even when I was an agent. I didn't look at teams as the enemy. And that was a little tougher for me than actual the negotiations. It was just sort of the feeling like, wow, you know, I'm really being seen as the adversary. Um, And one thing that happened in Green Bay is early on there were some players that looked at me, liked me, are wives, or friends because Green Bay is such a fishbowl and said, you know what, Andrew, I'm going to negotiate with you, and I don't need an agent. Hmm. I like you, I trust you. Hmm. And those were really hard for me because I looked at it initially and I'm like, this is great. Two friends sitting in a room talking about a contract. But I learned that it was, it was the, some of the hardest deals I've ever done because... You're telling a young man his worth, and it's raw, it's emotional, he doesn't like it, and frankly, it, it kind of uh, affected negatively a few relationships of me and players, my wife and their wife, uh, so that was a learning experience for me.
2: Andrew, one of the things that we spend a lot of time on this podcast talking with Mike, and it's not just football, because we do cover a lot of sports, but I think when we talk about Contracts and you compare and contrast across sports, the one big thing that Mike always brings up, and I'll let him follow up as well too, is the one big difference of the major sports is that there are no guaranteed contracts in the NFL um, compared to the other sports. I guess the, the question there is, do you ever see it happening? Are there some inroads being made by agents and so forth to try to move the NFL a little closer to the model of the other major sports where some of those contracts become guaranteed?
1: Yeah, I mean, if there's no I – th- I think the listeners know this. There's nothing in the CBA of baseball or basketball that says contracts should be guaranteed. There's nothing in the CBA of football that says they shouldn't. It comes down to individual negotiations. And I've said this before. It's got to start with the superstars to break the seal. Now, I know people say, well, you know, you give them $50 million bonus, it's essentially guaranteed, but really it's not. And I can think of a couple examples even coming into this year. One is someone who's all over the TV for different reasons named Tony Romo. You know, when he got his contract a few years ago, everyone said, oh, yeah, of course he's going to play through that. He's Tony Romo. Well, look what happened. Jack Prescott happened. And it's not guaranteed, and they got out of it. Now, they leave a big hole in their cap, but Tony Romo should be getting paid by the Cowboys for this year. If it was any other sport, of course he would. Um, I just don't understand why even the best agents and best players don't respond to an offer of $125 million and say, that's great, I'll take it, just make it guaranteed. Because you know what is the team's going to say. Well, of course, you're going to be here, and you should respond by saying, "Okay, make it guaranteed." Once the superstars get those, then they'll eventually be a triple down. But like any negotiation, it's much harder to get something in than to keep it out, and owners have been able to keep it
3: out. Andrew, let's kind of stay on the cap there if you don't mind. Uh one of the big scenarios obviously is this offseason that that has this massive amount of quarterbacks from all different angles, right? So we've got some potential free agent quarterbacks, possibly some trade trade option quarterbacks. And then obviously the top of the draft, there's a there's a handful of quarterbacks that are being targeted here. So One of the things I'd want to talk about is, number one, how do you see that sort of playing out, especially for the free agents, where it's such such a rarity to have a viable starting quarterback available via free agency. You know, the Kirk Cousins in them, is their number going to be compressed because of the need recently for teams to draft and sort of hit the lottery on these draft quarterbacks?
1: Yeah, it's a complicated question. Uh, You know, I think Cousins is a discussion unto himself— Really, excuse me, the uh, the Redskins have just seemed, it's almost like a relationship between a, a man and a woman that, that, that they're in, in very much like, but they're not in love. <laughs> so they just refuse to get married. Uh, they continue to date, and they're dating very heavily because they're paying all this money for last year and this year. But I still don't know, as you suggest, I still don't know if they're ready to get married on both sides, on both sides. So not just the Redskins' side, but the, the cousin side as well. Now, that leads me to believe that there won't be another, a huge long-term deal. So will they transition tag him and wait and see if anybody's really going to come after him with a huge number? I don't think they'll franchise tag him with the $35 million number. And the other issue is letting them into the market. I don't know. It's hard to handicap right now. But I tend to think that we tend to see that, you know, there's going to be all these money for quarterbacks that are going to be on the market. But then you start running down the teams, and teams are pretty covered. Whether it's with young guys, whether it's with the people they have now, Um, You know, people sort of throw out teams like Jacksonville. Well, maybe they they like Blake Bortles. They're certainly doing well this year. They throw out names like San Francisco. Well, it seems like they have an answer. Um, So when you really start going down the list, there aren't a lot of places, which means there's not as big a market as people may think.
2: Free agency is uh, always interesting, and in the, in the trends that we've seen in free agency, Andrew, around the NFL is it, it almost seems like teams have adopted a little more of the baseball model, which is lock up younger players before they ever get to free agency so you don't have to go into this crazy overspending market that free agency has sort of become. Are, are you sensing that we're moving, that free agency may, may be evolving in a way that not a lot of us thought because of that?
1: I am. I think one thing about free agency that we've seen over the past few years, it is very short now. <clears throat> there is a March, whatever that date is, and maybe it's 36 hours. And then it's basically over, except for two-year deals and some one-year deals and musical chairs contracts, people getting in before the money runs dry. Yes, there's always going to be the the Malik Jacksons and Janoris Jenkins and Brock Osweiler's the guys and Calais Campbell's that get the huge deals in, in that first wave, but it seems to be petering out. I think what you're addressing is what I did in Green Bay is we knew we had to get to guys young because, let's face it, we weren't in the most geographically desirable place, and when it got to free agency, we wanted to make sure we didn't have to pay top dollars. So you try to go guys early in their f- contracts, to get whatever discount you can and lock them up, so you're not dealing with their leverage point at free agency. But yeah, it's continued. Teams continue to do better to lock core guys up. There's more cap room now to do it. Uh, I think there's better management than there used to be when it comes to contracts and cap. So that's all happening. And then the last thing I, in Green Bay, as you know, we weren't a big free agency team. And I was part of that. I would ask the question like, wait a minute, why is is he out there? And why is his team not trying harder to lock him up? And you have to always ask those questions.
2: Uh, on the Green Bay front, we've talked an awful lot about it, and I think it's fascinating, the Green Bay approach. And I'm going to let you talk about one of your particular Green Bay situations by throwing you um, our favorite trivia question that Mike hit us up with a couple weeks ago. We were talking about career earnings. And uh, the top fifth, of the top 15 all-time career earners in NFL history, 13 of them are quarterbacks. And the great trivia question is, can you name who the other two are I know you can name one of them because you negotiated the deal. Tell us how the Packers decided to dip their toe, really, for one of the few times ever into free agency.
1: Well, they've had three big ones um, on the defensive side in in the 20-something years, starting with the first big free agent of all in Reggie White. Uh, The one I was intimately involved with became Defensive Player of the Year Charles Wilson mm-hmm. And then at the end of my career, it was uh, Julius Peppers. So in both those cases, you kind of look around as we did and say, wait a minute, no one's, the word we use is running. No one's running these guys. Running meaning bidding them up, going after them hard, marketing them, recruiting them, and... <laughs> You know, you just sort of shake your head, as I as I just said. Like, what are we, what are we missing? Why aren't these guys being chased more? Then you get into it. You talk to the agent. You figure it out. Is there a fit, and you start recruiting. And in Charles's case, it literally took a month. <laughs> uh, some of the hardest negotiation I've ever had, because, frankly, I think he wanted to keep waiting to see if someone would jump in. Uh, during that whole month, mid March to mid August, we finally signed Charles the week of the draft, um, and it was it was a hard sell because obviously he wanted to look at other options besides Green Bay, and we ended up hanging in there with him and got him.
0: Andrew, a uh, final thing, uh, and this has been so great, and there's so much information we could, we could talk to you for hours. Uh, so that means we have to have you on. We have to have you on again, but. Um, can you briefly uh, give us your opinion on what streaming is going to mean to NFL television contracts moving forward? Because that's where they derive so much revenue. Or is this just going to even bring even more revenue to the NFL?
1: Yeah, and our, I mean, we're in the week of the announcement of the Verizon deal, which allows for mobile access starting with the playoffs. Um, I've written this and talked about this. I just think people talking about NFL having problems or, The brutality, the violence, the concussions, the social protests, I don't think any of those are true threats to the prosperity of the NFL. I really don't. I think we've accepted the concussions. We complain about it, but we watch. We are turned on by the violence as much as we complain. Um, But I will say this. I think the biggest threat to the NFL and all sports leagues is the following. Attracting and maintaining younger audiences. That's it. That's that's the big threat. And I don't even need to say things. I don't even I think we even call it millennials or short attention spans. I just think it's younger audiences. All these leagues are skewing older. And the way to do it is going to be challenging, but OTT is a big part. Uh, every younger audience is watching more on mobile. Mobile is key. And we see that now with the Verizon deal, and they are going to be more. I think the NFL is in great position here because they've given out morsels the past couple of years to Twitter and Amazon on Thursday nights. They've got this Yahoo deal. Uh, They're going to have deals with NBC and CBS and Fox and over-the-top networks. So they're going to be fine. but the more they can do mobile, the less uh, commercials they can do. They've started to address that this year, but they need to do a lot more. And it would be tough to hold the attention of young viewers with these three, four-minute breaks during the games.
0: It's tough to hold my attention for three to four minutes uh, <laughs> on commercial breaks, but not uh, hearing you speak, Andrew. Thanks so much for your, for your time and joining us, and uh, we we'll look forward to doing this again.
1: Yeah, enjoyed it, guys. Happy to do it.
0: Thank you, Andrew. Thank you.
1: Today's Cap Fact.
2: All right, it is time for our Cap Fact of the week. The Yankees, Mike, making big news with the uh, trade for Giancarlo Stanton. and But we're not necessarily going to talk about the money involved in Stanton, which is crazy and ridiculous and huge and very much a Yankee-like thing to do. But look at the murderer's role of Yankee sluggers they now have.
3: Yeah, so so... Obviously, this move triggered a lot of thoughts in terms of the team building aspect of it because the Yankees are certainly stacking themselves up for you know to be the Bronx Bombers you know times three here. So, so what I did is I took a look at you know as teams begin to build this time of year, and certainly we're going to see a big wave of that in the next couple of weeks with the winter meetings happening. What I did is I, as I sort of assessed the last couple of years of team wins versus home runs versus total bases versus pitching strikeouts, right? Maybe the most the three most Trackable stats in terms of team totals throughout a season, and and what I found was actually extremely interesting. Obviously, home runs lead to bases, which leads to runs, which leads to wins. But it's it's actually not as important as pitchers that's that can strike somebody out. It it is the single most important team stat for a for a pitching rotation to be able to strike batters out on a consistent basis. And if you do, and if you're a top ten team in doing so you have a more than 75% chance of winning 90 games throughout a season wow. over the last three years. So, so I mean, obviously I think hitting home runs is where the, the, the league is going. I mean, they're juicing the baseballs, whatever they're doing. but Enhancing. They got, they're to the juicing <laughs> sorry, error. Sorry. sorry. <laughs> sorry. But, but obviously the, the, there are stats in place right now that show if you can hit hit the home run, garner total bases, and strike players out all in in the top 10 within the league, You are almost definitely insured 90 wins, which is a postseason berth. So there's a lot to be said about how you're going to build your team this this offseason, and it shouldn't just be hitting the ball out of the park. It's actually more important to load up your staff, not just starting pitchers. That middle relief and obviously the back end as well. It's got to be a, a total pitching rotation effort, but you want strikeouts.
2: Yeah, and I think, you know, as much as people are sort of criticizing the Yankees for going back to their old overspending days, there's a logical, legitimate baseball reason to add another 40 home run guy in Stanton to 40, judge. 50. Well, you know, 45th, whatever it is, to add him to judge and the rest of the guys they have.
0: I'm so. just looking forward to John Sterling. oh, G-Man. Oh, I'm sure he'll
2: have some buttes. Time now for the Contract of the Week.
0: All right, here we go. Contract of the Week, and this is Philadelphia's... 76ers often injured, but darn good center in uh, Joel Embiid.
3: Yeah, so we took a look at, at the upcoming extension for Embiid that uh, the Philadelphia p- recently signed with him. And it's not so much that it's a ton of money. Obviously, it is a ton of money. All NBA contracts are a ton of money. But, but they've done a structure that is extremely unique. And I think it's one that you might see with a few other players in the next coming weeks with uh, some of these extensions that might be pulled down again but basically what Philadelphia did is they took a NFL approach to this contract where they gave themselves outs. So not only is it a max deal now, but what can happen is if he's injured specifically to the back or to the feet, which has been the problem in his career to start, on a yearly basis there's essentially a dead cap number that they've established written into the contract that says, "Okay, if we have to release or cut him because of injury because he's obviously not going to play anymore, there are there's a number to each season that's attached, basically saying, okay, we owe him this much, but it's not the total amount. It's not even close to the total amount in some cases. So they've essentially given themselves an out every single season from 2018 to 2021, barring this back or foot injury with Embiid. So obviously that's one side of it. The other side of it that's extremely interesting is he's got to play a certain amount of minutes for him to keep this waiver in, intact. So if he doesn't play enough minutes, then... The, the Philadelphia's waiver system can, can kick in even more so. So Philadelphia has secured themselves nicely with this deal. Obviously, he's a great player if he stays healthy. And if, you know, tragedy happens and, and he can't stay healthy, they've got some financial compensation coming back to them. The big thing to know about this deal, let's just assume he stays healthy and he's, an, he's, a, he's a great player. Right now, it's $146 million. If he's an all pro this year, or if he's the league MVP, which doesn't seem likely, but if, if he makes first-team All-NBA, which is very possible based on what he's done so far, this is going to raise $30 million. So th- this becomes a five-year, $176 million contract. So you're, you're looking at a situation where if he stays healthy this year and he's, and he's on track to be a first-team All-NBAer, he's, he's going to get an additional $30 million kicked into next year's contract.
0: So, who lobbies whom on the voter side? The Sixers lobby the vote. Hey, don't you know vote for this It's
2: guy. an interesting <laughs> conversation because, you know what? If he's that good and they're that good because of him, yeah. uh, it's a coattail situation. They'll probably be more than happy to pay it. No problem.
0: <laughs> All right. Uh, a lot of great stuff there. Andrew Brandt was awesome. At the start of the podcast, the oh, Yankees, uh, of course, our uh, cap fact and uh, cool stuff there in the NBA with Joel Embiid. Now that's it for another edition of the Spontrack.com podcast. For the founder of Spontrack.com, Mike Giannetti, Paul Peck, I'm Kevin Sylvester. We'll talk to you next week.